0: Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Singers constructed this sonic castle out of ifs, out of possibilities and happenstance. Maybe you can tell, but the singers that you're listening to right now don't have traditional scores in front of them. You know, the kind of scores that have all the notes laid out one by one. Many of them aren't even professional musicians, and they probably couldn't read a score like that anyway. What they do have in front of them is a text. It's written by Confucius, and it's translated into English by Ezra Pound. And they have a list of rules. Rule number one. Before you begin, pick a note, any note. When the conductor says start, sing that note. Rule number two. The words you sing should be the ones on the page. Sing each word of the text several times. It's on the page how many times you should sing them. Rule number three. As you move from one word to the next, listen to the notes your colleagues are singing and change the note you're singing to a note that one of them is singing. So, as the piece progresses, the notes seem to fit together better and better, and gradually, all the randomness starts to sound kinda good. This is a drastically different kind of music making than you find in most ordinary choirs. The usual kind of music making, the kind that uses those scores where the notes are all written out one by one, requires a lot of expertise, a lot of teaching, a lot of learning. And it helps to be from a particular cultural and class background where you might have been encouraged to get a classical music education as a child. But this music isn't like that. This music tells you what to do in plain language. It's not easy music, lest anybody misunderstand. It takes a lot of practice to perform this music, and a lot of focus to keep track of where you are in the piece. But the rules of this music allow anybody who gets it in their mind that they might want to join a performance like this to do so. And to do so at the same level as everybody else on stage. This is one of those situations where the rules aren't made to be broken. This is a situation where rules are something to celebrate. Rules, you see, if they are good rules, set you free. This is Ghost Echoes, a history of music with secret rules. I'm Matthew Parsons. The music we're discussing today comes from the tail end of the 1960s, not so far away from the psychosocial space they used to call in London. But first we need to take a detour to the least swingin' of all the Londons, Victorian London. The year was 1880, and a social reformer named Emma Cons was becoming irate. The trouble was with the Old Vic. They were peddling filth, was the issue. Any night of the week, you could stop by the auditorium, get a noseful of sweat, and witness the most violent, crass, and vulgar spectacles surely in all of London. And that was just the audience. The Old Vic stood on the wrong side of the river. And it catered to the wrong kind of tastes. Working class tastes. Or at least what somebody thought the working classes liked. To the theatre proprietors, that meant tawdry stories of murder and seduction. It meant costuming your leading ladies in scandalously tight breeches. Throw in a few judicious sprays of stage blood from the odd throat, and you could sucker the punters night after night. The audience at the Old Vic felt free to shout their opinions at the stage at any time, no doubt emboldened by the demon drink, which flowed free from bottles in the lobby. Den of iniquity that it was, it seemed a mystery why God Almighty didn't descend from on high, wrest the old Vic off its rotten foundation, and fling it clean into the Thames. Now knock it off! Yes, Lord! Right! Emma Cons did not stand for this sort of thing. She was born to a piano maker and a mill owner's daughter and brought up with proper Victorian manners. Khans had spent the last twenty years of her life in charge of a philanthropic tenement building for the poor. She had her own opinions about where English society was headed, and why. One thing she knew was that the city must be rid of booze palaces like the Old Vic, lest all of civilization decline into belching, horny pandemonium. As luck would have it, the theater was moments away from bankruptcy. Cons spied an opportunity. She swooped in and bought the place. She got the money from a temperance organization called the Coffee Tavern Music Hall Company, which was trying to replace pubs and rowdy theaters with, well, coffee taverns and music halls. Cons vowed to run the Old Vic as a tight ship and a teetotal one to boot, she swapped out the old lobby bar for a coffee shop. She prevailed upon the janitors to, for the love of god, clean the shrimp tails out of the orchestra pit. And she turned the melodrama writers out on their ear. Instead of tacky theater, the new old Vic's patrons would hear classical music and educational programs. And legend has it, if you were caught drinking in the stalls, the formidable Miss Cons herself would materialize to escort you off the premises. A dark age had reached its end at the old Vic. At long last, propriety was the order of the day. At this point, you may be wondering whether this Cons person was a little bit patronizing. Maybe. It's hard to listen to this story and not get a moral panic sort of vibe. You've got to wonder whether her contempt for melodrama was an aesthetic grievance, or if it was really just contempt for the patrons. There's a book about the old Vic that has this to say about Khans. If she could not attract a more high-toned audience, she could at least try to reform the old one. But based on everything else I've read about Emma Khans, I don't actually think that's fair. Khans was a progressive by the standards of her time. She was a dedicated suffragette, for one thing, and she was an advocate for low-income people. Emma Kahn's vision for the Old Vic was based on a probably misbegotten, but I think sincere feeling that you could blame the bad conditions in London's poor neighborhoods on alcohol and bad theatre. And yeah, sure, that's ridiculous, but at least she's not blaming the poor for their own poverty, which is something we see a lot of even today. Point is, Emma Cons wasn't a gentrifier. She wasn't Basil Fawlty trying to build up a higher class of clientele. Turn away some of that riffraff! She was actually trying to improve the lives of working people in London, and improving the caliber of their entertainment was part of that. Fair enough. Entertainment is powerful even if it isn't powerful in precisely the way that Kahn's thought it was. Fine. Now, what does any of this have to do with semi-improvisational choir music from the late 60s? We'll get there. After this. Nobody expected the Tuesday evening penny lectures to be so popular. Once a week, you could drop by the Old Vic, and for the low, low price of just one penny, you could learn about the moon, or how to use a telephone. The lecture series started off in the theater itself, but it quickly sprouted into its own thing. The teachers held their classes behind the stage, beside the stage, under the stage, pretty much every available space that wasn't the stage. And soon, the Old Vic was moonlighting as a college. You couldn't get a PhD or even a BFA at the Old Vic, but the men and women who took courses there proudly appended the letters OVS to their names. Old Vic Student. Pretty soon, the college outgrew the backstage of the theater and moved into its very own building. Morley College is what it was called, and it's had some impressive faculty. The composer Gustav Holst taught there for 17 years. He wrote the music you're hearing now. And also this. And as of 1905, the librarian was one Virginia Woolf. She later rose to the rank of teacher, teaching writing to classes of largely working-class women. Morley College is in session to this day, and they still put on public lectures that cost only a penny. But what about Miss Emma Kahn's? Well, she kept a hand in the Old Vic until she died, but she had other plates spinning too. She became the first female alderman appointed to the London County Council. It was a largely symbolic position given that women weren't legally allowed to vote or even speak in the county hall at the time, but she did what she could. She served on committees, spoke up for women's suffrage, and just kept being one of those unlikely badasses. Miss Kahn's didn't live to see women get the vote but she did live to see the old Vic become an institution. And she did live to see Morley College get up and running. That's not a bad life's work. In 1968, a young man with a strikingly melodious name joined the music department at Morley. And it's just as well that Cornelius Cardew's name was melodious because he sometimes made music that sounded like this. Could be that Cornelius had some reservations about his new teaching gig. After all, the last one at the Royal Academy had been rocky. The senior faculty there had not at all appreciated his whimsical approach to pedagogy. They had not at all understood his intentions when he wordlessly locked all of his students inside of a classroom. Oh, how they'd screamed. They screamed and they screamed out the window until a groundskeeper came to release them. It was beautiful. One of those students claimed afterwards that this was the most profound composition lesson of his time at the academy. That guy... Got it. But this Morley College place seemed promising. They'd brought Cornelius in to teach an experimental music class, which was pleasantly vague. He knew the class itself would be made up of people of lots of different backgrounds. Some of his devoted acolytes were following him there from the Royal Academy. There'd be some amateur musicians, and apparently there'd be some people with no musical knowledge at all. Sculptors. Dancers. People who just thought experimental music sounded like an interesting thing to study. Like the moon. Or how to use a telephone. So... From 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Friday evenings, Cornelius oversaw a freewheeling laboratory on the fringes of music. Musicians and non-musicians alike came together to perform bleeding-edge modern music by John Cage and Morton Feldman to the best of their ability. Cornelius would sometimes take the opportunity to teach by demonstration. Once, he spent the first part of the class rolling one dried bean after another down a slope onto an amplified saucepan. His message got across, you know. Not long after, a student came to class with his pockets filled up with marbles and purposely spilled them all over the floor during a performance. That guy... got it. Cornelius didn't pass judgment on the performance the students gave. I mean, how could he? He didn't really have a goal here. He didn't even really believe in goals. He gave a talk about it on the BBC once. Everyone is failing. Our entire experience is this side of perfection. Failure exists in relation to goals. Nature has no goals and so can't fail. Humans have goals, and so they have to fail. Often the wonderful configurations produced by failure reveal the pettiness of the goals. Cornelius figured that creativity was when you set up a framework for something to happen, and then it does, and whatever it is, it is, right? Like you lock a bunch of students in a classroom, and then they scream for the groundskeeper, and then you walk away satisfied, having composed your masterpiece for the day. (laughs) What an unexpectedly energizing experience these classes had been for Cornelius. Surely he must have known he was onto something unique here. He had an old teacher, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who he thought about a lot. Stockhausen was one of the giants of experimental music, but his music wasn't just challenging for listeners, it was also near impossible to perform. His instructions were so exacting, so specific, that only a tiny group of people would ever be able to manage it. But surely there were people out there, somewhere in the freakish stew of 60s British counterculture, who'd like to make this kind of music but have no training. Cornelius knew they were out there. I mean, he'd met them in his classes. Of course they were out there. Maybe it was possible to take the most high-minded, obtuse, seemingly exclusive thing in the whole world, avant-garde art music, and turn it into a sort of community project. So, Cornelius typed up an advertisement for the counterculture magazine The International Times. I might be wrong, he began, but I think you may be interested in joining the Scratch Orchestra. Here we are again. Welcome back. You know how this music works now, but perhaps you don't know what it's called. It's called The Great Learning. It's written by Cornelius Cardew and performed by the Scratch Orchestra, Cardew's ad hoc crew of enthusiasts. Remember how this music's all about rules? That's what I'm talking about when I say Cardew liked to set up a framework for creativity. This music is just a refinement of the same impulse that led Cardew to lock his students in a classroom. It's a two-step process. Impose restrictions. See what happens. This two-step process took the Scratch Orchestra in some totally crazy directions. They marched en masse to a cinema while chanting and playing snippets of Mahler and Eurovision winners. They reimagined Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture as a game of table tennis. It ended when the score was 1812. They drew pictures in parks with birdseed and watched them disappear as the birds swooped in for a meal. The name of that last composition, by the way? Pigeon Event. The Scratch Orchestra was equal parts ludicrous and beautiful. It's beautiful because it was a profound act of faith. When he formed the Scratch Orchestra, Cornelius Cardew was proclaiming that he believed in the intellectual capacity of people, just people in general, whatever their background. He found ways around the fact that some of the musicians in his orchestra weren't that skilled, but he condescended to nobody. Until he did, but we'll save that for episode three. Cornelius Cardew and Emma Kahn's are connected by more than just an educational institution and a coincidence of history. They're connected by a belief that people are generally open-minded and curious when they're given the opportunity to be. A belief that people don't always prefer the path of least resistance. And they're connected by rules. Cardew's entire creative approach was about rules, and Kahn's, in her slightly diluted way built a great theater on rules rule number one no alcohol rule number two no tight breaches rule number three no melodrama in case it's not obvious i'm a fan of rules this podcast wouldn't exist for you to listen to if it weren't for rules ghost echoes is based on a set of rules that i intend to follow to the letter Every episode, I'll dig up hidden connections and put forth crazy notions about one particular musical recording. But I don't choose these recordings exactly. They're chosen for me, according to my rules. Rule number one is... And then rule number two states that... And rule number three is that I'm not allowed to tell the listeners what the first two rules are. Ghost Echoes is a history of music with secret rules. I've imposed my restrictions. Now I'll see what happens. I'm Matthew Parsons. Next time is the best time. We all know... is ACAST Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, it's Terry O'Reilly, host of the Under the Influence podcast. I'm an ex ad man who analyzes why the ads you hate sell the most products. I uncover the funny things you find in the fine print and why the color orange saves you money. If you never thought you would ever listen to a show about advertising, consider the one iTunes chose as one of the most popular podcasts of the year. Under the Influence. Give us a listen. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.